You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been family-owned and family-run, and has specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents, never compromising on quality materials or construction. Hilleberg tents are the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers the world over, especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions, and who depend on utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, Hilleberg tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. The Alaska climbing season started slowly this year, with massive storms in April that dumped as much as seven feet of snow. But conditions improved, and several major ascents got done on Denali, North America's highest peak. Michael Gardner and Sam Hennessy made a very impressive second ascent of light traveler on Denali's southwest face, reaching the summit in a single push of just 31 hours. Colin Haley raced up the Cassine Ridge in a record-setting solo ascent, We've recorded an interview with Colin about this climb that will be featured in the very next episode of The Cutting Edge. And the third big climb was Chantelle Astorga and Ann Gilbert Chase's ascent of the Slovak Direct on Denali's south base. This is perhaps the hardest climb yet in the Alaska range by an all-female team. Ann Gilbert and Chantelle were fresh off another big ascent just last fall when they teamed up with Jason Thompson, Ann Gilbert's husband, to climb a new route on Nilkantha, a peak in India over 6,500 meters high. Ann Gilbert, Jason, and Carol North had already tried Nilkantha once before in 2015. This time, supported by an AAC Cutting Edge Award, they made it up the 1,400 meter southwest base over five days of hard climbing. The Slovak Direct on Denali was also a second attempt for Ann Gilbert and Chantel. They made it about 3,000 feet up the route in 2017 and vowed to return. The Slovak Direct was first climbed in 1984 and is probably the most popular of Denali's hardest routes, with nine known ascents. It climbs over 9,000 vertical feet up the south face, just to the right of the Cassine. It's rare for any team of mountaineers to complete a doubleheader of such significant climbs in just six or seven months, and it's exciting to see these highly talented women pull it off. To learn more about their climbs, Chris Kalman spoke with Ann Gilbert soon after she returned to her home in Bozeman, Montana. I'm here today with Ann Gilbert Chase. Ann Gilbert, in case you didn't know already, made the first ascent in the fall of 2017 of a very difficult peak in India called Mount Nilkantha, along with Chantella Storga and Jason Thompson. Um, we were all set to talk with her about that climb, but then in June, she and Chantel became the first female team to successfully climb the Slovak Direct on Denali, which has been touted by some as one of the finest climbs by an all-female alpine team in recent memory. So before we dig in, uh, why don't you just tell us which of these climbs do you think was more important for you personally, and which do you want to talk about? All right. Well, hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on. And um... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think they're both very meaningful in very different ways. Um, I think 
the route obscured perception that we put up on Nilkantha was sort of for me the first time going over to the Himalayas. It was a two-year, I guess really a three-year project, but it was sort of the first time that I had been to the Himalayas and I didn't know if I was really strong enough or skilled enough to climb in the Himalayas. So I think completing that route for me was a big personal achievement of just knowing that I have the confidence to go into the great ranges and climb, um, which was pretty cool. And especially, you know, it, it definitely took some effort flying around the world, uh, not once, twice. But uh, I think the Slovak in a lot of ways was sort of, um, they're very similar in the facts that they kind of pushed me personally in my own mental and physical limits. But also, for me, the Slovak was this beautiful route that I have known about. I used to guide up on Denali. And, you know, you always hear about these routes up there. And it's a pretty famous route, um, just from its history. And, um, and then I saw it in 2015, I went up the East Fork to climb on Mazzioli's pillar. And I got to see it right underneath of it. And I just knew at that point that I wanted to climb it. Um, so I think they're different in that way of like India. I had no idea what I wanted to climb when I went over there. You know, I just kind of knew I wanted to go to the Himalayas and climb. Whereas the Slovak was once I saw it and realized what it was, I was, you know, kind of put my sight on that. And um, in some ways, I think for me, climbing on Denali is, I think, harder than necessarily the times that I've climbed in the Himalayas. It's just the altitude feels harsh. The weather is so much colder. You know, we had pretty mild weather while we were in the Himalayas, so it felt pretty nice. Um, well, let's let's dig into the Slovak, and I bet later in the interview we'll come back to Neil Kanta a little bit. Cool. Um, awesome. Well, why don't you give me a little bit of background about um, how you decided you wanted to climb the Slovak, how you decided to team up with Chantel? Yeah. So. Um, Chantel and I both guided on Denali for a lot of years, and that's where we first met, um, I want to say back in 2010. And, um, you know, if you spend time up on Denali, for the most part, if you're guiding, that's all you do is the West Buttress. You know, you don't, not everyone gets to spend more time up there and, and get to climb other things. But from the years of guiding up there, I started to learn about just Denali and and in the bigger picture, the Alaska range and just these amazing climbs and mountains. And, you know, the South face of Denali is steep and massive and it just is beautiful. And so I always kind of knew about the, the South face, specifically the Slovak. Um, in 2000 and I guess 16, um, that spring Chantel asked, she emailed me and we had stayed in touch over the years and she emailed me and asked if um, I wanted to go climb in Alaska the following spring. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And she was interested in the infinite spur on Mount Forker. Um, but I was a little more drawn to the Slovak. So I had mentioned that and um, we kind of went back and forth on it and we uh, decided on to, to attempt the Slovak. And so nice. um, in May, slash June of 2017, we attempted the Slovak. Um, but due to some bad weather, we made it up about 3,000 feet. Um, and it wasn't a very good weather window, but we kind of decided uh -huh. to give it a go and um, ended up. And it, at 3,000 feet of the climb, about what elevation are you at at that time? Um, it's about 
14,000 feet, give or take a little bit. Gotcha. I think the route starts at 11,200. And then you got at 3,000 feet up, you got quite a ways to go, right? Yeah, the technical climbing um, is done at around um, 16.5. And that's um, at that point, it's the last technical pitch and you can kind of unrope. And then you have about 1,000 feet of snow walking to where it joins with the Cassine at around 17.5. So, yeah, we were, we had made a, a good amount of headway, but we were, in the middle of the second day, which is the longest day. And that's when the storm came in and, you know, we're kind of in this big dihedral system that we were just getting spin drifted on and it just wasn't working. So we decided to bail. And, um, at that point we didn't have any gear left after bailing. And so our trip was over. And so at the time that you bailed, um, in 2017, did you already know that you were going to want to come back and try this again? Yeah, we actually, once we made it down to the glacier safely and started the walk back out the East Fork, we decided at that point to go back the following year and give it another go. Wow. So that was like immediate. Yeah. We just knew that, you know, the climbing was amazing and we, we felt good on it and felt that even though we didn't succeed, we felt that we weren't out of our leagues necessarily. And so, yeah, we made the pact to come back the following year. So this year... You guys came back in June. Is that right? Did you fly in in June or was that like late May? Uh, we flew in actually early May. Um, oh, early I think May. we flew on the glacier on like the 12th or 13th of May. Oh, okay. So were you guys there waiting out bad weather or something? Because the climb was not till like early June, right? Yeah, we started the climb on June 2nd. Um, but no, with Alaska, I mean, the summit of Denali is 20,300 in some feet. So it, it takes a while to, to acclimate. And, right. you know, if you're climbing technical grade five pitches back to back, you definitely need to be feeling strong. So our plan was just to make our way up to 14,000 feet on the West buttress and just make that our base camp and acclimate there. And uh, we just uh, went to the summit once and skied and just kind of, you know, went up and down and just feeling I think even sleeping at 14 is good for you and then going higher on the mountain. And, um, and we were actually planned to be on the mountain until um, almost June 20th. So we were giving ourselves sort of the, the full time and weren't going to let it slip away this go. But we got lucky and got an early weather window. Now, this is sort of a diversion, but um, outside of your career as an alpine climber, you're also a nurse. Isn't that right? That is. Yep. So how do you get two months off of work? <laughs> um, so I'm really lucky. I have a position at our local hospital. I've uh, been there for a little over two years. Um, it's called Casual Call. And it's That's in Bozeman. It's in Bozeman, yep. Uh, and it is um, pretty much a fill-in position. You know, it's not a full-time, it's not a part-time position. But because um, nurses want time off and um, I'm actually able to work full-time when I'm home, I just make my own schedule. And then I, by contract, I'm only required to work a minimum of three shifts a month. So I could work the first three of one month and the last three of a second month and get two months off. So Nice. Well, that's pretty convenient to all the would-be alpine climbers out there that want a little more income. Nursing sounds like it might be a good gig. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Every time I come back from a trip, <laughs> I'm like oh man, I hope I don't walk back in. And they just tell me that my position's, you know, gone. 
but uh-huh. <laughs> my uh, my managers are really psyched on on me climbing, and so they they support me traveling, which is great. That's awesome. Yeah. So you guys are there in Denali. You're acclimated. Um, you're feeling good. At that point, did you have to wait for like a window to show up, or was it pretty much just as soon as you felt like you had the fitness and the acclimation, you guys just went for it? Yeah, you know, I mean, after after a little bit of time up at 14, you start to feel pretty good. And, um, you know, we were lucky the weather was pretty decent while we were up there that we were able to go higher. Um, mm. And so, like I said, it was definitely earlier than we had originally intended to climb. You know, we were hoping right. more for maybe a mid-June um, attempt just to help with, um, you know, some of the ice and stuff conditions on the route but it happened that we got the weather window when we did and we both felt that we were acclimated enough we weren't necessarily as acclimated as we've maybe would have liked to have been but we felt good enough to go and it was you know i mean it's for a route like the slovak you kind of need unless you're going to do it in a single push which even then is still a long time you you need a good amount of days, you know, a minimum of four for us was sort of our minimum. And we, we needed a little bit more to get ourselves down to the base of the route and set up. So to get a four to five day weather window on Denali is pretty hard to do. So when you get one, you can't really pass it up. Well, um, why don't you walk us through the actual scent a little bit? Um, you know, I'm coming at it personally without too much knowledge about the route and I'm sure a lot of our readers or listeners are in the same boat. So, um, you know, kind of walk us through those four days and where on the wall you were and, and what kind of difficulties you were encountering. Yeah. So, um, the route starts at 11,200 feet up in the East Fork. Um, so day one, is pretty straightforward. You can simul climb about the first thousand feet or a little more, a thousand to fifteen hundred feet of moderate snow climbing, a few um, you know mixed steps here and there, but nothing um, terribly difficult. And then this puts you kind of in this corner system that, if you continued, would kind of put you up to the Cassine Ridge. But there's this big traverse. Um, a couple hundred feet that traverses rightward. And that's where you encounter the first crux of the route. It's a kind of a rock slab that depending upon conditions can either be um, caked with, with snow and ice and make for easy travel, or it can be drier and be a little bit harder because there's not a great amount of gear at that point. Gotcha. Um, when we tried it the year before, it was super cruiser. Um, we had really good snow and so we were able to kind of just step across it and go, whereas this year it was a little bit drier. And so we actually mm-hmm. had to make, um, a good amount of rock moves. What kind of difficulties are we talking about? And are you guys like in rock shoes or still in boots? Boots the whole way, boots and crampons the whole way. Um, it's just too cold and too much snow. So yeah, boots and crampons. And it, it probably is about a M5 or an M6 move gotcha um which some some of these moves if you had if you had rock shoes on they'd be quite easy but it becomes a little more difficult when you're climbing loose blocks and and stuff like that so 
Um, we made it across that and continued on this big traverse until you get to a left-facing corner um, that provides the first water ice crux of the, it's the crux of the lower route. It's, they call it water ice six. Mm-hmm. The year before I had led it and it was kind of steep ice with a little bit of loose rock climbing kind of with your tools and crampons, but it, mm-hmm. it was difficult, but it wasn't too difficult. You know, the ice was pretty good and it got better as the higher you got. Um, but this year, again, being such a dry year, the ice was very rotten. Um, and so we had more, more of the dry tooling um, to get through that. Nice. And um, Chantel led it this year and styled it. And um, so then we continued on with a few more M5 pitches, nothing super difficult, but they're kind of long, maybe three more of those. And then you're back in simul climbing terrain um, for another... I don't know, 1,500 feet or a little more. And that puts you up onto this big snow field. And there's a Bergschrun up there. Um, We bivvied there. It was about an 11-hour day to get to that point. So we were, I think we got to camp around 6 o'clock and um, were able to to brew up and get some good sleep, which was great because from that point on, there's one more spot for a potential bivvy. Um, and I think only two parties had bivied there and all the others had kept going and, you know, made for 30 plus hour day. So uh, we went to bed early, brewed water and, um, and actually got some good sleep that night um, and started out climbing the next day, which is you can simul climb for a ways, kind of mellow, maybe 50 degree snow and ice. And then you get up into the rocks and you're able to kind of continue to simul climb moderate um, rock terrain for let's see maybe 500 feet or so five or 600 feet it's not super long um and then you're kind of in another big corner system and we get a bunch of kind of m5 to m6 pitches back to back and so it it's pretty steep at this point the lower part of the route is not very steep. You have pitches that are steep and sections, but for the most part, it's pretty low angle. And at this point, it, and are, are you at this point, like, are you guys mostly, are you swapping leads? Or are you climbing in blocks? Yeah. I mean, we're, how's that working? We're climbing in blocks. Um, you know, we, we would tend to do anywhere from two to four pitches back to back, kind of depending upon the, um, how hard they were, if they were really mm-hmm. long, you know, some of them were kind of mentally taxing of just being loose or you know yeah well, sometimes you anywhere from yeah two to four pitches um but it, is the second jugging or climbing seconds climbing um okay. yeah so we both had good sized packs we did not split up um a leader and a follower pack we just they weren't extremely heavy so we just decided to to kind of keep it as it as it was and if we needed to we could haul um a pack part of the way um, but we opted only to bring how heavy, not that heavy, because I'm imagining it's heavier than pack that most people I know usually climb with. It's probably 30 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what kind of difficulty are you guys leading rotten rock and loose snow and stuff with 30 pound packs on? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they call it the original grade was like 5.9 M6, water ice 6. So, it, yeah, I mean, you're definitely climbing technical 
steep terrain with heavy packs. Pretty impressive. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, you kind of just, the pack becomes part of you after a while and you kind of forget how heavy it is until you like hang it on the anchor and then you go to put it back on and you're like, oh man, I can hardly get this thing on. Yeah, I think it can be pretty hard to communicate like the difficulty of what you guys are doing because... Yeah, I mean, I think if you break the individual pitches down, the technicality is not overly difficult you know it's five nine or water ice five six but when you add yeah 30 pound pack and elevation and the fact that you're in the alpine and so the the gear that you get is not always perfect or right always where you need it um yeah there are a lot of elements that come into play and how did you feel like you know you said the gear is not great or perfect i mean is that kind of an understatement I wouldn't say, I mean, overall, the gear was actually extremely good. I mean, the granite on Denali is is quite good. It's just, it's not always where you want it. You know, you're making a difficult move and maybe your last piece of gear is 15 feet below you and you can't quite get in what you want. Um, Right. But no, there was one pitch um, that I led that we we, we got off route a a tiny bit and um, it was very loose and I was pulling blocks off and I couldn't really get any gear. I had one pin in and just kind of Mm. pretty scary. And we were just kind of one corner off. We needed to go a little bit further right to gain the big ice corner. Um, Gotcha. And so we just were too far left. And that's actually the point where we bailed the year before. Mm. Um, I was trying to lead it the year before and just getting pounded with spin drift. And um, it just wasn't happening. So when I came back this year, I think I was probably a little nervous going into it, just knowing where I'd been on it before. Um, right. After that pitch, we were able to to get back on track. We realized we were one corner off, and we were able to to climb over and and gain the the main corner system. If you've ever seen pictures of the Slovak up close, it's you know you see a lot of these ice pitches, and this is like mm-hmm. the ice system, um, and it's beautiful. And there's this huge head wall above you that's just golden granite, and um, we started climbing up, and it's like starts out as water ice three, four with a little bit of mixed terrain in there. And then it, the ice just gets steeper and steeper um, until you finally get into like water ice five plus and water ice six. And I was leading through that stuff. And the, the water ice six pitch was not in very good condition this year. It was extremely rotten. Um, it's overhanging. And so I was having to dig down two feet to get any type of good ice to be able to place a screw. Wow. And so it, I think it's always a little rotten from what I've heard, but looking at previous pictures, there was definitely um, better ice on it in, in past years. And, um, you know, a lot of the parties have climbed it end of June around the solstice and um, the mountain is just able to, to form ice a little better. But yeah, so we, we finally made it through that and you kind of get to the base of what they call the rock crux. Um, and that's where we were hoping to bivy that night. I think we'd been going for about 18 hours at that point, and uh, we were really hoping to find a bivy, but unfortunately did not have any luck um, as far as setting up a tent. But we were able to chop out a small ledge um, that was about the size of each one of our, our butts, and so we sat down <laughs> and um, you know got in our sleeping bag and, and got wrapped ourselves in the tent and we're able to at least sit down and drink water and rest for um, 
a good amount of hours. I think maybe four hours or so, four or five hours. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> didn't get any sleep, but we at least we rested, which was kind of the goal, you know, just to take a break. Um, and then we started up the next day um, with the Rock Crux pitch, which is really just aiding. Um, and Chantel, um, you know, is one of those where, yeah, if you had rock shoes on, you'd be loving it. But it's a little bit harder um, with crampons and tools. So we had a beautiful day that day, got a little bit of a later start, just not having a proper good sleep that night. And so um, at that point, you go up the snow field, we're simul climbing again, pretty low angle. And then you get into, you're right next to Big Bertha, which is this hanging Serac glacier um, that's really intimidating. Um, I mean, it's probably a 12-story building height, and Whoa. it's, yeah, it's huge, <laughs> and it's, you're right next to it. You're never under it, but you're right next to it, and you can hear it creaking, and wow. it's pretty nerve-wracking to be right next to something that big. Um, and so we... Continued to simul climb up moderate um, snow and then got into some rock. Um, and that takes you up to kind of the final buttress. And you have one more technical pitch to get up through that. Um, this was probably in the late evening and a storm rolled in. Um, pretty heavy storm, actually. It was snowing pretty hard and the visibility was almost nothing. And as you guys like predicted that from the weather forecast you got or was this sort of a surprise to you it wasn't a total surprise uh jason and uh chantel's boyfriend bill had been doing weather for us and they had said that we might get a little bit of snow on monday but i don't think we really you know we didn't know how much and we didn't know exactly when it was going to be and we had such a beautiful day that whole day that we were like huh maybe it maybe it's not going to happen and then it kind of moved in um and it probably lasted about four or five hours and we had nowhere to bivy at that point you know it's just not an option so we had to keep going and I think temperatures were probably about negative 18 we were pretty wet at that point from just all the snow and spin drift and um, we had one final pitch to go and it was steep and harder than we it's harder than you probably think it is just because you're tired. You know, at that point we'd been going all day. Um, and so we made it through that pitch and hit the, the big snow field that you have about a thousand feet at that point to get up to where you bivy on the, on the casino. And so we started breaking trail um, and made it up to where we bivied at around, I don't know, we probably got there at two or three and uh-huh. we got in the tents at 4 a.m or got in the tent at four and, um, Chantel had her sleeping pad had busted. Um, so we were, <laughs> wasn't the most comfortable night's sleep, but we were psyched to, to be laying down since we hadn't, since the first night it had been, you know, 38 hours or something. So, um, so I, I want to go back real quick to, as your guys are hanging out in this blizzard, I mean, is there any is there any part of you at that point that was thinking, uh oh, we're gonna have to go down, or are you thinking, all right, this is cool, we'll just wait this out? I mean, are you cold? Are you wet? Are you just at a hanging play? Like, what was the situation like? Yeah, there's there's definitely a point on the Slovak where there's a point of no return. Um, we also opted this year to go lighter, and we only brought one sixty meter rope. We did not bring a tagline. Um, so we were pretty committed to climbing this thing. Yeah. Um, 
And so there was definitely, we knew our only option was to go up. And we also knew that this was supposed to be a short-lived storm. Um, and we had been um, in communication while we were climbing with um, Jason and Bill. So we we knew that this was a short-lived storm. It's just you're kind of at that point, like you don't know how short it's going to be. And it, it kind of feels forever. But um, no, it was definitely, I would say, a, a grim situation. We were very wet. Um, Chantelle had run out of dry gloves at that point. Um, and um, yeah, we had a hanging belay and during that last pitch. And um, yeah, it was one of those where you're kind of like, I hope it doesn't get any worse because, you know, it's negative 18. We don't have any dry gloves. And, um, you know, I mean, it's cold and you're wet and, um, you know, um, but at the same time, you just know you have to keep moving. You have to keep getting the rope up because that's the only option. Um, right. Right. And so we knew we were close. We had this one last pitch to lead. And then at that point it was just literally snow walking and we knew where we had to go. So, um, I think if we had been lower on the route, yeah, maybe we would have tried to hunker down somewhere. Um, but we just didn't have that option. So, um, I don't know. I think sometimes for me, at least when you get into situations like that, you can't, or I can't, you know, kind of, I don't want to say get too, too dramatic, but you kind of just have to focus on the task at hand of what you're doing. And at that point it was getting through this final, um, crux pitch and just making it up. And then at that point, once we did that, you know, it was like, okay, now we just have a thousand feet of snow walking. We can, mm-hmm. we can do that. And so you kind of just like focus in solely on what you have to do and taking care of yourself and making sure that you can, you know, feel your hands and your toes and you're eating and drinking right. and making sure that you can keep going. Yeah. Gosh. So <laughs> at that point, you're really dreaming for like sunny rock climbing <laughs> and like a tank top, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm like, yeah, it's, I think that I'll keep on going rock climbing. <laughs> yeah. I would say, you know, for the most part, the climb was definitely type one fun for us. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it was definitely in the moment, like everything went surprisingly very smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, but this moment was definitely like type two. We were just yeah. like, all right. I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean there there must be some it must be a pretty amazing feeling when you woke up that fourth day and we're like, all right, we're just gonna walk uphill to the summit. Yeah, you're psyched for sure. It's uh it was still about three thousand feet um mm-hmm. in at altitude, but um literally we put the rope away and just walked uphill. Nice. And um two um two gentlemen had climbed the Cassine and they had actually summited that morning. And so they put in a track and it was like a perfect boot track <laughs> that we were able to follow. Awesome. Um, yeah. So we were super psyched when we came around the corner because the night before it was pretty hard trail breaking. Uh-huh. And, you know, we were like, Oh man, I don't know. We're going to be able to do this for 3000 feet. And then we came around the corner and there was just a perfect trail. Wow. And so it was, it was pretty awesome. Um, kind of like when someone hangs the draws for you on your sport project. Totally. The draws were hung the whole way. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. And then, so how do you guys, do you have any snafus trying to descend or was it pretty cruiser the whole way? It was pretty cruiser the whole way. We summited, um, 
around six o'clock that evening. And at this point we were, you summit back on the West buttress. Um, and so you join with the, the standard route up the mountain. And from there we were, um, ran downhill pretty quickly. I think we were back to 17,000 feet camp at around a little before 8 PM. Mm-hmm. And then, um, we hung out there, got some water and food, and then kept on down to 14,000 foot camp, which is where our we had left our main tent and food and all. So we got down there around 10 o'clock that night and yeah, we're done and got in our sleeping bags and got to fully lay down and sleep till the next day, which was <laughs> probably one of the better feelings after climbing a route like that. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. What an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the initial thought that goes through my mind, like hearing you describe um, that, that climb is just, gosh, you guys were super committed. And I'm, I mean, obviously that's not unusual for this kind of climb or this sort of route. But, um, you know, what, like what, what's your decision making process to, to kind of come to the conclusion that that's worth it. You know, did you feel kind of like, well, okay, if things really go bad, we can call for a rescue because we have the inreach or were you sort of thinking, I mean, what were you thinking? How do you make the decision to tackle an objective that's, you know, so committed? Um, I think, you know, for me, I'm a pretty driven person and a pretty focused person, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm climbing or nursing or, or just living um, my life. And, and so for me, like I knew I wanted to climb this route and I trained extremely hard for it the year before and we didn't make it, but I at least did a lot of the technical climbing and knew at that point that I could fully do it. It was within my ability um, and I felt comfortable on it. I mean, that's not to say that I had moments where I was scared or maybe not feeling as strong, but I, I knew that if I went into it confident and ready that I, there was no doubt that I could climb it. Um, and so I trained even harder this past winter, um, in preparation for it. And you never know, I guess, right. I mean, accidents happen. One of us could have fallen and broken a leg or a storm could have come in. Like, yeah, I mean, anytime you go into the Alpine and terrain like that, I mean, they're always, certain things that are out of your control. Um, but I never once felt that I was hanging it out there too far. You don't see too many teams of all female Alpine climbers these days. And, um, I, I think that's sort of inherently interesting. I think it brings up a lot of questions like why not? Um, do you think there's any sort of reason you know as far as physical differences or anything like that goes why do you think it is that you don't see as much females in the alpine and as a female do you you know does it bring you more satisfaction to do something with an all-female team or did Chantel just happen to be you know a good good partner for you and you would have been as happy to climb it with a, a male partner uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, actually, Jason and I were just having this conversation the other day regarding um, female alpinists. Um, 
You know, I, I think there may be a lot of reasons. I think, you know, there are definitely more women getting into the sport of climbing in general, um, whether that's more of the sport or bouldering or, or crack climbing or whatever. But there's still, yeah, not that many female in the alpine world. Um, and I think two things come to mind for me. Um, I think one, there's definitely a lot of suffering involved. Um, with big alpine routes, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's cold. Um, women, you know, we tend to be smaller than men. We tend to get colder than men, not always, but, um, and so I think that there, and you have to carry heavy packs. Like, I think they're just, it's not always type one fun. I, I don't think it has anything to do with lack of strength for women, um, at all. I think it's more of just, maybe there are a lot of women that are like, yeah, it just doesn't sound that fun. It sounds way more fun to like, you know, go climb out cap and a t-shirt and like still pursue and push the limits of climbing, but just in different realms. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think that for big alpine climbing, whether it's in Alaska or the Himalayas, it takes a really long time to gain the skill set to go do those routes. You know, a lot of, they're always the anomalies of of the young alpine climbers that are just pushing the limits right away. But a lot of alpine climbers are in their late twenties, early thirties, and even into their mid thirties. And I think, you know, for women, if if women want to have a family or kids, Mm. you know, I mean, unfortunately that timeframe is pretty similar. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe some women will get mad at me for saying this. I don't know, (laughs) but Um, you know, I mean, a lot of my friends in Bozeman, um, of my age are having kids now and, and, and going the family route and are are not pushing it as they were in the Alpine as much anymore. And I think as far as the other part of that question, um, honestly, I, I don't seek out women Mm -hmm. just exclusively. Um, I have a handful of really close female climbers that, I've gone on, on big trips with and climbed around. And I also have good male climbers that I've gone with. Um, and I think, honestly, I think this past year of Nilkantha and the Slovak kind of lined uh-huh. up just with Chantel and I, um, and I think, you know, after Chantel and I attempted the Slovak last time, Jason and I were looking for a third, um, to climb in the Himalayas and, at that point, it kind of seemed that Chantel, she had mentioned that, you know, if we were looking for a third, that she would be happy to go. Um, and so it kind of just seemed like it worked out that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I would say I'm happy um, climbing with both men and women. I think that they bring different things to the table. Um, and it's fun to do both and to do different objectives with different people and, and stuff like that. So sure. what do you make of the whole, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion lately about first female sense and whether, you know, I think some people have suggested that um, keeping track of whether it's the first female, you know, that somehow um, holds back the progress of, women climbing because you know it's making a distinction where there doesn't need to be one but others say actually it's really important to make notes of this because you know it's it's a notable thing so um where do you fall on that whole discussion um you know i um 
Nicholas Hobley from Planet Mountain actually asked me the same thing of, you know, he was like, how do you want this climb to be remembered? Does he, do you want it to be like the ninth ascent or do you want it to be remembered as the first female? Um, for me regarding the Slovak, I, I feel just honored to be a part of the eight other teams that have climbed it, especially since a lot of them are some of the best alpinists in the world. And to have, you know, myself tied into that is is pretty cool. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily get tied up in um, the first female ascent too much. Um, I think that if it empowers women and inspires women, you know, if, this climb, the Slovak first female ascent inspires and empowers women to go into the big mountains and mm-hmm. achieve their own dreams, then I'm all for it. Um, if, if that's like, you know, going to give them that confidence. Um, but for me, that's more powerful knowing like I wanted to climb this route and I knew I could do it and I did it. And no matter if I'm the 20th ascent, the first ascent or the first female ascent, it's sure. like I accomplished something in my own mind that I knew I could do and I did it. And for me, that's more powerful. I've been the editor of the American Alpine Journal for six years now. And I can tell you that the 2018 edition has more reports by and about women climbers than any previous year. The editors didn't plan it this way. It's just a reflection of the number of women worldwide pursuing really high standard routes in the mountains. It's an exciting time and I can't wait to see what comes next. Thanks to Ann Gilbert Chase and Chris Kalman for doing this interview. And thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for their constant support of this podcast. Learn more about their bomb-proof tents at hilleberg.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the AAJ, wishing you happy climbs.